Good morning. My name, as Tony Parade, um, is Bryce Rader. I'm the Young Adults Director and also a Pastoral Assistant at Harvest. And I've been given the task to preach um, 1 Samuel 17, which is David and Goliath. Great story, right? So thankful to be in this text this morning. When I first think about the story of David and Goliath, my initial thought is, it's 58 verses. That is a big chunk of text. So put on your seatbelts. My second, my second thing when I think about this text is all the characters in the story, right? The characters that the author names. It's obviously a big chunk of text, like I said, but he mentions a lot of characters. We have, you know, we have Saul. We also had David's three brothers, Eliab, Abinadad, and Shammah. We have Jesse, David's father. We have the thousands of troops that are lined up for battle. And we also have David, the shepherd boy. Have you ever wondered why David stood out among all these other people in the story? Have you ever thought about that? Why does David stand out? Why is he the one that's going to go in the gap to defeat the people of, to defeat the Philistines? Why is he going to be the one to defeat Goliath? I've been thinking a lot about that this week, and I think our text gives us at least two reasons, and these are going to be our two points for this morning. So our first point this morning is David is qualified by faith in God. Our first point, David is qualified by faith in God. And our second point this morning is David is chosen for the work of God. David is chosen for the work of God. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 this morning, David and Goliath. Will you all all stand with me? And we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to start in verse 48. I'm going to read a portion of it. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistines. David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and hit the Philistines on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, Praise be to God. Y'all can be seated. I'm going to pray for us. Holy Father, as you are good, you are merciful, you are kind, you are God, and you are God alone. And by your grace, we as people of harvest are your children. I pray that in your mercy and in your kindness that you would speak to your children this morning. God, that your people would hear your voice. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so before we dive into our two points, we need to get familiar with the setting of the story. All right, so we saw in last week's passage in 1 Samuel 16 how God rejected Saul as king and he anointed David as the future king. You see, David was chosen and anointed as future king, but he's not recognized by the people yet. 
You see, Saul is still the king in the eyes of the people. And when we get to 1 Samuel 17, we really start to see a shift in 1 Samuel as we see David's rise to kingship and Saul's descent to ruin and destruction. Nevertheless, like I said, Saul is still king in the eyes of the people, and the people of Israel find themselves at battle with the Philistines, their biggest foe, and they're at the Valley of Allah, and only a ravine separates them from the Philistines. And so we get to chapter 4 in 1 Samuel, or we get to verse 4 in 1 Samuel 17, and we hear um, the author really go into detail about the Philistine champion. He's talking about the enormousness of this Hulk-like man. Let's pick it up in verse 4 and see what the author says. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was swung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. I love this last part. It's so funny. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. So you see all that and then also there's this shield bearer that's walking in front of him. When Marcus Hall used to play for the Grizzlies, People would see him out, right? You would like see him at Kroger and he was like soaring over the aisle. To put in perspective, um, Goliath is three feet taller than Mark Gasol. Is that not unbelievable? And so the author goes to show this man is enormous. He is huge. His armor, it's pretty much covering him from head to toe. The tip of his spear 15 pounds. I don't even know if I could pick up the tip. This guy is massive, and the author wants us to see this. And so this Hulk-like man speaks too, and we see in verse 8 when he speaks, and I'm pretty much summing up, this is what he says. He says, your champion versus me. I'll meet you in the octagon one-on-one. The loser will serve the winner. So this tactic would have been used to to save a lot of bloodshed. So it's just one-on-one, the loser will serve the winner. And then we hear really Goliath's battle cry in verse 10. Look at what it says. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so that we can fight one another. So here's the call to the people of Israel. Send me a man so that we can fight one another. And you gotta think to yourself, who should be that man? Who should go on, the, on behalf of the people of Israel and fight Goliath? Well, it's Saul, right? It should be him. He's the king, right, in the eyes of the people. He's the one that the people asked in 1 Samuel 8. They wanted a king so that he can go and fight their battles. But what do we see Saul doing? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 11. This is what it says. When Saul, and all the Isra- when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Their king is cowering in the corner. You see, this is his first battle after being rejected by the Lord and the Spirit of God abandoned him. And we see this man clearly operating in the flesh. And here's the reality here for Saul and the people of God. They are not trusting in Yahweh. 
they are not trusting in their God. They ultimately think that this behemoth-like man, Goliath, is greater than their God. They ultimately think that Goliath is going to go and defeat them and their God. This is a bleak scene for the covenant people of God. We got to understand this. We got to sit in this setting. They're in the corner terrified. But then we get to verse 12, and the author takes this much needed pivot when he starts to introduce this boy named David who was charged by his father to go bring his brothers who were at war supplies. And don't miss this in verse 12. Even in the midst of Israel's faithlessness, God is faithful. He is providentially sending an unlikely hero to step into the gap for the people of Israel that they might be saved. God is at work. He is faithful. And so we're really going to see a glimpse of greatness from David really for the rest of the chapter. And he's a great example for us to follow, which brings us to our very first point. David is qualified by faith in God. So David comes to the Israelite camp to check on his brothers, and look what happens immediately when he comes. We'll pick it up in verse 23. While he was speaking with them, he asked his brothers how they were. And while he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. So the text says, for 40 days, Goliath would every morning and every evening shout, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me someone so they could fight me. For 40 days, he was doing this. And Israel's demeanor, their reaction to this is the exact same as they first heard it. Well, how do you know that? Well, look at the next verse. It says in verse 24, when all Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. It hadn't changed. They're still not trusting Yahweh. They still think that the God that they serve isn't big enough to defeat Goliath. All of them, but one. David has this different reaction. Look at verse 26. Look what David says. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see David's reaction here? David's reaction is radically different. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? This guy's not a covenant people of God. Who does he think he is that he should stand up and defy the armies of the living God? David's reaction is so different than every single other person. And have you ever thought about why that might be? I feel like that's a pretty good question reading this text. Why is David the only one that says this? Well, I've been thinking about that a lot this week, and I don't really have a profound answer for you guys. I think it's pretty simple. David's trust is in Yahweh. David's foundation is firm because he trusts in God and him alone. David was qualified to stand up to this uncircumcised Philistine because of his faith in Yahweh. Have you ever thought to yourself, or maybe you've heard someone else say this, man, I really wish I had that intense faith like David. Have you ever said that to yourself? 
Or maybe you've heard somebody say that. I really want that intense faith. Like the intensity of David's faith is something I really desire. I've said that. But as I read this story, I'm reminded over and over that it wasn't, David wasn't qualified for the intensity of his faith. See, he wasn't qualified to stand in the gap for the people of Israel, even for this sincerity of his faith. And he also wasn't qualified to step in the gap for the people of Israel because of the amount of his faith. No, hear me out. David was qualified to step in the gap for the people of Israel because of the object of his faith. The emphasis is on the living God whom he trusts in. David can do this because he trusts God and his promises. So hear this. David is is able to act on the plan of God because he first trusts in the person and the promise of God. Are y'all with me? David is able to act on the plan of God because he first trusts in the person and promise of God. He knows God and he knows his promises. He knows his promises in Genesis 12 when God promised to Abraham and the covenant people that those who bless you, I will bless, but those who treat you with contempt, I will curse. He also knows his promises in Deuteronomy when he says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses, chariots, and armies larger than yours, do not be afraid of them. For the, Lord you got, for the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. You see, David believed God and his promises, and it shaped the way that he lived. He believed God and his promises, and it shaped the way that he lived. And we clearly see this because he's the only one stepping up to Goliath saying, who is this man? And Harvest Church, this is the same for us today. What we believe about God and his promises shapes the way that we live, right? If we want to have faith like David, well, then it starts to getting to know the God that David so trusts in more and more. I've told this story a couple times, but um, when my child Henry was just six weeks old, Um, We woke up one morning, and his heart rate was above 250 beats per minute. Really scary, right? And so we rushed him to the ER, and it really didn't get better. Long story short, it actually rose to 298. And so they rushed this little guy to the fourth floor at Labonner's Children's Hospital. So when we got to the fourth fourth floor, they said, we're going to have to shock your child so that his heart rate might go back into rhythm. My wife and I are sitting there like, wow. I mean, what do you do? And so that's exactly what they did. And I saw his little body jerk in the air. And when he came back down, the doctors came to us and said, it didn't work. And I remember at that moment, I looked to my left and I saw my wife and she was crying, rightfully so. And I remember looking to my right and seeing my child Henry, who is on the bed, hooked up to so many different machines, and he's wailing, right? Rightfully so. And I remember just sitting there, and it's like, in some senses, time slowed down for a second. I remember sitting there, and I'll tell y'all, I don't always do this, but at that moment, with everything around me, chaos all around, I started to recall in my head what I knew about the sovereignty of God. 
I just started thinking, all right, Bryce, what do I know about the sovereignty of God? And I started to think about the God that Kenan preached about when we went through the book of Exodus that split open the Red Sea as the people of Israel walked through it. And I started to recall the God in my head that we sing about every single Sunday in songs like Behold Our God, who says, who has held the ocean in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? And I started to think about the God that I ruthlessly studied about in my senior year in college in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book. I started to recall this sovereign God that I served, and it led me at that moment to trust him completely, regardless of the outcome. And I don't know every trial, struggle, temptation that you guys are going through right now, But I do know that what we believe about God and his promises shapes the way we live. It shapes the way that we trust God. And I thought we saw one of the greatest examples of this on Friday. Barry Jenkins, who was at his wife's funeral, at the very end of the funeral, and I know many of you were there, got up on stage. And this was literally one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. He got up on stage and led the whole congregation in worship. He is grieving, right? His wife had just passed away, but in joy, he can get on stage and lead the whole congregation in worship. How can he do that? Because what that man believes about God and his promises shapes the way that he lives. It shapes the way that he trusts God. He knows what God's word says. He knows to be absent with the body is present with the Lord. He knows what Jesus said to the thief on the cross that says, you will be with me today in paradise. He knows that and he showed us a great example of what it looked like to trust God. And so some of you in here might be wondering, all right, all right, that's great. Well, how do I get to know the God of the Bible more and more? I wanna know God and his promises more. Well, that's a great question. I think you're doing that right now by sitting under the preached word. This is our main meal as a congregation comes together and really gets served up a great diet. I praise God for this. I want to encourage you to take notes as you do this and go back over the sermon, meditate on the sermon with your friends and your family, your coworkers. Many of you are in discipleship communities that are already doing that. And I praise God for that. Another thing is, I said this is our main meal, but it's not our only meal. We should be individually diving into God's word each and every day. And I think a great thing that you can do as you're diving into God's word is just ask the simple question, all right, what does this passage teach me about God? Right, pretty simple question, but as we continue to do that over and over, do you not know how much we're learning about the God of the Bible? I wanna encourage you to do that. And finally, I have two really good books that you might want to read. For those who are readers and love to read, um, two books that really point us to the person of God and the promises of God. One is Knowing God, pretty convincing title, by J.I. Packer, and the other one is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. All right, so David is able to act on the plan of God because he first trusts in the person and promise of God. And so as we continue the story, I want to show you one more thing about David's faith. You see, it doesn't waver as he gets closer to the fight with Goliath. Have you ever thought how crazy that is? Right, this nine foot, you know, massive dude 
um, David is about to go confront him, but his faith does not waver. It's actually strengthened. How is his faith strengthened? Well, David's not absent-minded about the Lord's past faithfulness. No, he actually recalls what the Lord has done in the past, and it enables him to continue in the present. So in the story, when Saul hears of David um, and what he said about the uncircumcised Philistine, he summons him into his presence. And David immediately says this, I'm going to be the one to go on behalf and fight Goliath. And what does Saul say? He says, no, 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 no. A boy cannot do a man's job. And so David, after that, starts to give this apologetic of why he thinks he should be the one to go and defeat Goliath. And so we pick it up in verse 34, and this is David's apologetic right here. David answers Saul and said, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So you see this right here. If we just stop right here, it kind of seems like in some ways David is trusting in his own ability. It kind of seems like some ways David is saying, bro, look at my past. Have you seen what I've done to these wild beasts? Bear, lion, psh, I took care of them. I can take care of Goliath. But that's actually not at all what's happening. Because if we keep reading, look at what verse 37 says. This is key. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Did you, did you catch that? Did you catch the who and will right there? The Lord who rescued me will save me. Do you not see that? David is not absent-minded when he comes face-to-face with Goliath. He's not just thinking, all right, gosh, I'm in trouble. What do I do? No, he's thinking about God's past faithfulness. He's thinking about how the Lord has carried him up to this moment. And understanding that, he's saying, the Lord will do this for me. The God that has been with me will be there for me. How incredible is that? Not absent-minded, but looking at God's faithfulness. This could be horrible parenting, so don't judge me. But when Henry, um, when, as he's been, he's 10 months old right now, but especially when he was six months, seven months, eight months, um, when he would go to bed, Kelsey or me would have to be like, and I don't know if y'all have experienced this, but we'd have to be like right over his crib and really with our hand rubbing his back. And it was kind of funny at first because when we were rubbing his back, like he would be fine. And then when if we took our hand off of his back, his little head would pop up and make sure that we were still there. And then if we were still there, he would be fine and he would just continue to go to sleep, continue in the process. But... If he looked up and we weren't there, we kind of slowly crept out of the room, he would just immediately start crying and everything would be unraveled. And so I thought it was cute at first, but when he interrupted the process and we had to start it all over again, it actually made me kind of frustrated. And as I was thinking about this and thinking about his actions, I said, gosh, isn't this my reaction so many times to the Lord? when trials and temptations and struggles go my way? Isn't this how I react? 
I might not feel the Lord as I should, or I might not see the Lord as I think that I should, and immediately I just start freaking out and I start trusting in myself. You see, with Henry doing this, yeah, it's understandable. He doesn't have a fully developed brain to realize that Kelsey and me has never once abandoned him. We have never once left him. But for me, when trials, temptations, and struggles come my way, it's absolutely not understandable because I can recall God's past faithfulness. I can recall that the Lord has never left me or forsaken me. The Lord has never abandoned me. And it says in his text that he never will. When those things happen, I get absent-minded. And this text is telling us, no, recall God's faithfulness. Because if you do that, it enables you to continue to have faith in the future. Let's look at David's example right here. And you, should, and you might be wondering, all right, all right, that sounds good. But how do I actually put that into practice? What does that actually look like? That's a great question. I think... You men with families, I think it's a great thing to lead your families in worship. You be the one to lead your families in worship. And you sit down with the Bible, whether you're you know, at a meal or whether afterwards, and start talking about the goodness of God in Scripture and start talking about how faithful God has been in His Word. And not only in His Word, but also in your lives as well. Maybe some stories that your kid, kids have never even heard about. You're able to tell them, hey kids, God showed up at this moment. Hey kids, God was there. Look at what God did. And that just enables you to continue in faith as you go in the future. I think another one is many of us have prayer journals, which are just great things. I praise God for that. But I think as I've had a prayer journal, I'm quick to write down my prayers, but I'm also slow to write when God actually answers the prayers. So I think that's a good habit to write down our prayers, and also when the Lord in his kindness actually answers our prayers, and we look back, man, God was so faithful right there. And then we continue to see the faithfulness of God in our lives. So these are some things that will help us just cultivate an understanding of looking back on God's faithfulness that will enable us to continue in faith. All right, so we've seen David. He was a man qualified by faith in God. He was a man that trusted in the person of God, in the promises of God, and looked back on the faithfulness of God, which, which allowed him to continue in faith. And so we come to our very final point. David is chosen for the work of God. David is chosen for the work of God. I talked about this a little bit, but Friday... Um, at the funeral, Kenan was given the homily, and he continued to go on and on about Kempe's life, and it, and it was incredible. She lived a life that glorified the Lord. She lived a life um, that, that was just run really, really well, and Kenan was showing us that, just the amount of um, organizations and people that she impacted. It, it was unbelievable to sit back and see the example. And I was thinking to myself, man, I want to live a life just like that. That's incredible. And so about three-fourths into the sermon that Kenan was given, he stopped. And I'll never forget this quote for the rest of my life. But he said, Kempe would have killed me if I made her the hero of the story. And he said, Kempe's not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story, and she knew that so well. And we, when we read this story of David and Goliath, 
it's the exact same thing. I think we have this tendency to see David in all his greatness, and he does show us glimpses of greatness, but God's the real hero of the story. God is at work choosing, anointing, and working through David to defeat Goliath. God is the emphasis of the story, and we cannot miss this. And you know what he does, which is incredible? He chooses this unlikely hero, this unlikely candidate, that he might get the glory, right? He chooses somebody that everybody's saying, no, there's no way. But he does this so he can work through them and get the glory. We see three times that people say pretty much the exact same reaction. David, you are outmatched. There's no way. Iliab says it. Saul says it. And we see now that Goliath is saying that. So when David comes face to face with Goliath in verse 42, this is what he says. So in verse 42, he says, When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy, and handsome. Just be honest, I get despised all the time being a youth, healthy, and handsome. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But here, you see Goliath. He's really upset, right? He sees David and he's like, he despises him. Why do you think that is? Well, I think partly is because he sees David coming out as just a boy and without any armor and without a sword, right? He doesn't have any of those things. It's just this young boy walking with a sling and five stones. And Goliath is thinking, He's not going to put up much of a fight. What in the world? And so he despises him. David, an unlikely hero walking up. And I think if we were, right, if we had tickets to this fight or we paid enough money to watch it on pay-per-view, I think we'd be saying the exact same thing. Right? If we were looking at it, we'd seen Goliath and seeing David in the octagon, we would say the exact same thing. David. You are outmatched. There is no way. But I, I want to ask you, was he really outmatched? Was there really no way that David was going to fight Goliath? Well, in one sense, this was a battle of Israel versus the Philistines, David versus Goliath. In all reality, this was a battle of Yahweh versus the false gods. And David understood this. He recognized this and no one else did. Because Goliath comes up after that and curses David by his gods. Right? Goliath knows, my power is coming from Dagon. I'm coming for you. And David knows, as his blood is boiling, that the God that I serve is undefeated. He has never lost and he will never lose. And this is what he says. Let's continue reading in verse 46. Oh, this is so good. He says, today the Lord will hand you over to me. This is David talking to Goliath. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpse of the, of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God and this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's he will hand you over to us do you see this dialogue from David right here do you get this David understood that it was the battle of the gods David understood more than anybody that it was Yahweh versus versus Philistines false gods and look what happens as the story continues David takes his sling slings it right to Goliath's forehead, boom, hits him in the forehead, 
the thump that's heard around the world, right? Goliath immediately hits the deck. And when that happens, he gets his, David gets his sword, ironically, and cuts off his head. And this is what the text reads. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. End of story. End of story. God chooses an unlikely hero. Uh, somebody that every single person counted out that every single person looked at and said you're outmatched there's no way but God does this he chooses David because it's his battle so all the world will know that it's the Lord who saves that it's the Lord who reigns that it's the Lord who has defeated Goliath it's the battle of the gods and Yahweh in this story his record remains undefeated what an incredible story right What an amazing story of God doing great work on behalf of his people. As we land the plane, I want us to think about one thing, right? So what what do we really think about when we walk out of here with the story of David and Goliath? What's the one thing that we should be really leaving thinking about? And and I think it's this. When we tend to hear biblical stories, we kind of insert ourselves into the stories. Have you ever done that, right? You, you read about these great people and you start to identify with the characters. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I think that's a natural tendency. These stories were written for our example. But here's what I want to say. The person that we most identify with in the story of David and Goliath is not David. And some of you in here might be asking, what? It's not David? No, it's actually the Israelites, the ones that are cowering in fear. And here's why that's good news. Because when we start to see that, the gospel is clearly unveiled. You see, the Israelites, they couldn't save themselves, right? They needed somebody to go on behalf of them to fight their battles. They needed a savior. They needed someone to stand in the gap. And that's exactly what David does. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed one, qualified by faith, chosen by God to step in the gap. He's Israel's savior at this moment. You see, David is actually intended to point to Jesus. So when we see David, it's really not like looking in a mirror. No, it's actually really like looking through a window because it goes beyond David to David's greater son, Jesus. So when we see David, we're supposed to see a picture of Jesus. Jesus is David's greater son. Jesus is the greater David. This is what this story is unveiling to us. You see, David saves the people of Israel, but he just saves them for a temporary time. It's just a physical salvation. But what does Jesus do? Jesus saves us once and for all. And he saves us in a more remarkable way because how does he defeat the enemy? He defeats the enemy by dying on the cross. He defeats the enemy by taking the wrath of God on him and rising from the grave. And all those that look on the sun, oh, they're saved. And it's not a temporary salvation, but it's a salvation that lasts for all eternity. Jesus, when we look at this passage of David, we're supposed to see him. We're supposed to glorify him. It's supposed to be an anticipation of the one that's going to come. And we know that one. That is Jesus Christ. So this text leads us to worship him. 
But for all of you, those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you do not identify with the Israelites. You actually identify with the Philistines. And you might be asking, well, how is that so? Well, Jesus in the gospel says, if you're actually not for me, then you're against me. But here's the good news for you. Even though that you are an enemy of God, it says in Romans 5 that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. By trusting in Jesus, by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Christ, you can become a child of God. And I would implore you to do that today. I would implore you, today is the day of salvation. You can do that by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus. The story of Goliath is incredible. We see a man, right, and that shows a glimpse of greatness to us, while at the same time, he's pointing us to his greater son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, as we come before you, God, you are so kind and so merciful that we might see you in all your glory in this text, that we might see you work through a man, an unlikely hero, so that you might be the one to get the glory. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.